because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today joining us, we have Jasmine and Neil Rapley. And a little bit about them and their background. So they both work for Book of Mormon Central, and that's where they met, and now they're married. Um, and Neil has a background where he's, he's published some articles for the Interpreter Foundation and for BYU Studies. Thank you so much for being on, Neil and Jasmine. I really appreciate it. Your yeah. pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. So a little bit um, before we discuss more of, about Book of Mormon Central and such, I'd love to discuss how you guys were able to develop your testimonies and such, and a little bit of that background. Uh, yeah, um, that's a, that is always a great question. And uh, there's probably a lot of different ways I could answer. I've probably answered differently every time I've been asked, to be 100% honest. But, uh, you know, a lot of it is not very glamorous. It's the regular stuff. You know, I I went to church growing up and uh, I read my scriptures and I prayed and I sought to know and um, and, uh, you know, I've I've just felt like I've always had that faith and assurance that it's true. Um, but, you know, I, I do think there have been uh, some uh, turning points for me or, or key moments, I guess, where I felt like. Um, I got, uh, you know, just that, that little extra confirmation or, or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, some of them right now that I'd be willing to share on a podcast to the world, but well, I think uh, one thing that was a catalyst for you to gain your testimony of the gospel in an academic way was really getting interested in this sort of stuff on your mission. Yeah, I mean, that that's true. Uh, I kind of came into this because I used to be an insufferable know-it-all, and I'm probably, <laughs> I probably still am an insufferable know-it-all, but uh, uh, as an insufferable know-it-all on a mission in Virginia, I really hated it when people stumped me, you know, when we're tracting and, and they would, we would start bashing and stuff like that. So I decided when I got home, I'm going to learn all about all this stuff. And, you know, I, I came across, it, it wasn't just Bible bashing. People would hand us anti-literature and my companions usually didn't read, but I would read that stuff and, and uh, I would have questions. I'd be like, huh, I've never heard of any of this stuff. Uh, but I, I was willing, I, I don't know exactly what it was about the nature of my faith at the time or whatever, but I was willing to hold off judgment because I was like, yeah, I need to do some more reading. But I, I hated that people were stumping me. So I was just determined to get home and just read up on all this stuff because I wanted to win the arguments, right? I wanted to, uh, I, I didn't like that. The people sometimes seem to know more about it than I did. Um, and, uh, and so that got me, I, I came home and I started reading farms and fair stuff. 
Um, and now you know it all. And now, now I know it all. You know, <laughs> just I, kidding. Just kidding. I don't really. And if, if I've learned anything in the in the last 10, 11 years doing this, it's that no matter how much I learn, there's always somebody who knows more than me who's going to disagree. So it's it's inevitable that you can't ultimately base your testimony on what you know. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that was that was a big part of why I pursued more intellectual. Um, sort of engagement with the gospel and the scriptures. And as far as my testimony and development, I also was born in the church. And so mostly just had faith from a young age through the normal motions of scripture study and prayer and faith and all those wonderful good things. Um, but my real spiritual maturity started coming towards the end of high school as um as I was studying seminary, my mother was my seminary teacher and she has a real passion for the scriptures. She doesn't claim to have any historical training, but she loves them. And so she instilled that love in me and got me really, really curious and asking questions about the New Testament and the Old Testament. And also some friends that I had who were Catholic and seemed to have a real good grasp on the Bible that I lacked. And that got me really interested in Christian history and uh, the biblical world. And so then I went to BYU and graduated ancient Near Eastern studies. And that was really where I developed a lot in understanding the biblical world, but also getting introduced to some concepts in the apologetic world and church history. And after graduation, I uh, started working for Book of Mormon Central as their web developer and graphic designer, and that's morphed into different roles. But uh, ever since then, I've really come to grow and love the gospel of Jesus Christ for not only what it's done for me spiritually and the various you know, spiritual moments I've had through my life that confirm the reality of God, that he loves his children, things like that, uh, but also maturing in a way where I can appreciate intellectually how rich and beautiful and complex the gospel of Jesus Christ can be and how much there is to learn and how that pursuit is, is beautiful. And it's going to take a lifetime and it's, and it's a wonderful thing and we'll never know it all, but I, I love the journey. Thank you for sharing that. I can definitely relate to Neil in the regard that I served my mission in Georgia and I, I remember before my mission kind of being more, I was more hesitant to like, I'd heard about fair Mormon, but I was more hesitant to learn about that kind of stuff but on my mission. I remember just thinking, I wish I had more resources to learn about that kind of stuff. So when I came home, it was pretty similar. And I, I started looking into fair Mormon and interpreter foundation and doing a lot of reading with that kind of stuff as well. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about book of Mormon central. Can you guys kind of explain what it is, how it could be helpful, some of like the different resources available there? Uh, yeah, so uh, Book of Mormon Central is a nonprofit organization. Um, and uh, we're kind of dedicated at this point to really doing this with all of the scriptures. Uh, we've kind of adopted the Come Follow Me model and, and we're doing a lot of stuff for Doctrine and Covenants right now. But, you know, uh, we're dedicated to uh, helping people build faith in Jesus Christ uh, by making uh, the Book of Mormon specifically and also the rest of Restoration Scripture uh, accessible, uh, comprehensible, or understandable and um, and defensible. Um, 
And uh, we do that in a variety of ways and with a variety of resources. Uh, when we started out, uh, the number one resource, and, and it's still going today, the kind of main feature of our brand is what we call the know why articles. Um, and we think we're clever, so we, we write know why as one word, K-N-O-W-H-Y, uh, but it really is playing off of both knowing something, but also knowing why that something is significant or important um, to building faith um, or, or to living like a disciple of Christ and things like that. And so uh, each of those articles is divided up into two sections or most of them, at least there's a couple where we've been a little more creative in the structure, but uh, most of them are divided into two sections where there's a no, which is telling you, which is just kind of the information, right? It's giving you usually some sort of uh, ancient contextual background or linguistic contextual thing, or sometimes it's a literary thing or, or, or whatever, but it's giving you some information on a passage uh, or, or, or that helps you understand a passage in the Book of Mormon. And then the why section, this, it comes after that, and it kind of gives you a little bit of background on uh, how this helps you better understand the Book of Mormon, how it helps you better understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it helps you, uh, how it, what, what it can do to give you insight into living like a disciple of Jesus Christ, things like that. Um, and uh, the goal of, of each of those was to take some really complex stuff in a lot of scholarship. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's been published in, in large tomes and books and things like that and volumes and volumes of journals. But most people are just never going to read. And most scholars, honestly, are never even going to read. Like the, the, the body of scholarship at this point in the world is just massive, right? And, and uh, scholars can't even really master the literature in their discipline. But, um, but when it comes to the scriptures, the scholarship that's done on scripture is important to the discipleship and, and the life of, of believers, right? Regardless of what your faith tradition is. Um, and so we believe that it's really important to make that accessible to people to help them understand uh, their scripture. So each of these Noai articles usually is trying to condense and summarize uh, some longer and more complicated stuff uh, from scholarship and to help people see why understanding that is actually meaningful for them. Uh, but ever since, you know, over the, over the years, we've also expanded beyond just doing Noai's, but that's still always kind of been the principal goal is to take material that's usually uh, inaccessible and hard to find, but helps you better understand the scriptures and, and put it out in ways and formats that are going to enrich people's actual study of the scriptures. The two largest projects that we've really focused on, uh, all of them are geared toward helping saints improve their come follow me study and improve their scripture study. And no wise do that to an extent today, uh, but we also have um, our video production process, which we're publishing a video every single day on something on the Doctrine and Covenants. Right now, our most popular one is uh, Taylor Halverson and Tyler Griffin are both BYU professors. And they give an hour Sunday school lesson every week on YouTube. Um, that's been really popular because, you know, they're bringing in some uh, historical insights and, uh, and with the Book of Mormon here, they were doing a lot of ancient Hebrew insights or Egyptian insights or geographic insights. Uh, but the other thing we, we do a lot of is we have a, an app called Scripture Plus. And this app is similar to the Gospel Library app. And now you can read your scriptures just like you would there, except in addition to what the Gospel Library app offers, we put right into the text, connected to down to the verse level, 
commentaries, images, videos, articles, uh, anything you could want to learn more about the scriptures. So as you're scrolling through, you'll have a panel at the bottom that's populating with more content that you can read. Commentaries from Steve Harper, a commentary from Jack Welch, a commentary from Brett Gardner, and videos to help you study. And so um, we've seen a lot of success with, with that so far, and we're really passionate about it because that's why we're here to help people improve their scripture study, uh, not just to engage in the scholarship, but on a personal devotional level to be doing it every day, to find tools to help them dive in a little bit deeper, a little bit at a time. Um, kind of think some of the other projects that we do. I mean, we, we do a lot. We have a lot of projects on the table at any given time, but those are some of the, the main ones, Nowise, videos, Scripture Plus app. We have other satellite projects such as Pearl of Great Price Central is a, a project we started in order to address some criticisms on the book of Abraham. And now we've expanded into Book of Moses and Joseph's history. And we plan to do more there as well. And we also started a Doctrine and Covenant Central website and brand that Casey Griffiths and Scott Woodward, both uh, BYU professors, are mostly behind, and they've been populating that with excellent resources to help people understand church history a little bit better. And uh, yeah, we just can keep continuing to grow, and and things are going pretty well at Book of Mormon Central. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I know last year I, I learned about the Scripture Plus app, and I think it's just a great resource. You're, you're studying the Book of Mormon and you're just scrolling through and maybe you kind of want like a visual. You can find videos that talk about the, what, you're, what you're reading or maybe there's like you have some complex question. There's a good chance there might be some scholarly article about that exact question. So I, I've really enjoyed having that as a resource. Uh, yeah, and I, I do think it's worth mentioning um... – uh, first of all, when you do when, when you download the Scripture Plus app, which is free, by the way, uh, if anybody's wondering, there you know, like I said, we're nonprofit. We thrive off of, of uh, donations, voluntary donations, and and things like that. And so we don't charge anybody for any of the services we provide. Uh, so the Scripture Plus app is free, and what you're really getting is you're getting a gateway to all of the content we've created and put up on. Book of Mormon Central and Doctrine and Covenants Central and places like that, you're getting a gateway to all of that that's embedded right into your own scripture study. So as you're studying the scriptures, the resources of Book of Mormon Central are right there at your fingertips. Um, and it's also, I think, worth mentioning a, a, another feature that we have on the website is our archive. I talked a lot about how we're trying to make the long, complicated, sometimes boring scholarship more engaging and accessible. And, and present it in more popular formats. Uh, but we are committed, you know, I do this because I love reading all that long boring stuff, right? And, and we aren't trying to just like, uh, you know, hide what the, the full body of data or evidence has to say. Uh, the archive is the place where we're actually putting all the scholarship we can find relative to the Book of Mormon that we can get permissions uh, from publishers to, to make available. We're trying to just put all of that there on the archive and make it accessible for free. So when you read a lot of the, uh, the Know Why articles and other things that we do, lots of times the sources we're citing are directly linked right into those, uh, right into the archive to get the full source. If, you're, if there's something you're thinking, hey, hey I'm, I'm actually really curious about that. I want to learn more. Boom, you can, you can click right into to the, to the full article and, and really dive deep. 
I love that. That's, I didn't know that. It's a really good thing. I was, I was listening to some podcast today that someone was interviewing Stephen Harper. And one of the things that he talked about is just like going to the original sources and stuff. Like sometimes we spend so much time looking at other people's interpretation of data, but I think it can be very helpful to just look at the original data. And obviously we don't always have time to do that with everything, but I think that can be very, very helpful. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to church history, uh, it's never been easier to go to the original sources. Uh, I mean, uh, you look at what they're doing with the saints volumes, right? And they they're writing saints. They're doing the similar thing to what we're trying to do with the Book of Mormon. They're writing that in a way that they're hoping makes it easier and more accessible for people to, to actually want to read and understand our history. But if you're reading that in a digital format, it's linking right to the original sources all the time. And the Joseph Smith Papers Project, uh, which is dedicated to, to transparency and just putting everything, every document we have linked to Joseph Smith, online, available, 100% free for people to go take a look at. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, but I think people don't fully appreciate everything the church has done because uh, beyond the Joseph Smith Papers Project, if you go to the Church History Library's website, you can actually access thousands upon thousands of primary sources uh, digital that, that have been digitized by the church right on the church's uh the church history library unfortunately it's not 100 percent of their collection but the reality is they don't even know like there's there's things in the church history library that nobody's ever even looked at because they just haven't organized and, and cataloged everything because it's massive uh, but they've made tons and tons of of sources available uh from from throughout our history and so uh if anybody thinks the church is hiding its history i i just go to the church history library website and and search stuff and you'll find there are documents freely available the church is making its history very accessible uh and i think in some ways latter-day saints maybe don't fully appreciate how spoiled we are in the sense of having so much access to primary source documents that the church has made it so easy to go to the joseph smith papers website and look up an original manuscript of a revelation and to have it correlated. You want to see what Doctrine and Covenants 19 looked like? Well, here's a link right to the Joseph Smith papers where you can see the parchment it was written on. And it's it's incredible because I was appreciating this just yesterday as I've been trying to prepare some biblical materials for next year at uh, what a stark difference it is that uh, the Bible and Christianity has been around for thousands of years and the scholarship is massive. And it's it's incredible how many resources there are. But they aren't as easy as the Joseph Smith papers. The Joseph Smith papers has made it so easy to go to the original sources. You don't have that same thing for the Dead Sea Scrolls or for the earliest manuscripts we have of the Masoretic text to the same extent that we do with the Joseph Smith papers. It's insane. It's incredible what the church has done. Nor do we have anything like that for any other like contemporary historical figure that I know of. Uh, you, that, you, you can't access a massive online database of Thomas Jefferson papers or or, you know, the Abraham Lincoln papers or something like that. Like those are available. You have to go to a library though. And you have to, uh, you have, in, in some cases, I think a lot of Thomas Jefferson and, and Abraham Lincoln have been published in some fairly big and expensive books. But in some cases you've actually got to, there's a specific library you've got to go to because they're the only ones with the holdings of the primary sources. And uh, lots of times they won't even let you in unless you have uh, some kind of academic credential or something like that. And so, yeah, uh, 
Now, I guess we don't need to keep beating this dead horse, but the church has done an, an incredibly amazing thing with the Joseph Smith papers and, and a lot of their other, uh, the church history library digit, uh, digitization uh, of other sources in, in making so much of their history available. And uh, yeah, people, people just do not fully appreciate the, everything the church has done to be very transparent. Yeah, we're definitely spoiled. And there's lots of great resources that we should all check out. Um, the next thing I wanted to kind of go over is um, some of what are some of the the major criticisms of the Book of Mormon and what are some ways that we can cope with those criticisms? Well, what are the major criticisms is a pretty large question. There have been a lot of criticisms over the years and uh, this may be a, a relevant time to bring up that Book of Mormon Central has started another project called Evidence Central, which exists right now to publicize and provide evidences to believe in the historicity and authenticity of the Book of Mormon. And so we've published over 150 articles so far, just little correlations from antiquity that help us make sense of something that's in the Book of Mormon. And uh, I think it, it definitely helps in that regard combat some criticisms. Uh, but uh, overall, I think the Book of Mormon just gets better with age. Things that we didn't know in the 19th century have become lucid and clear now as far as archaeology and things that we didn't know 10 years ago are starting to come to light. And uh, things are continuing to improve. But I know this is a, a topic you're very passionate about. Uh, well, yeah. And I mean, there, there's there's always going to be a criticisms of the Book of Mormon. And I don't know that uh, we'll ever be to the point where we have we have satisfied the demands of everyone uh, with the evidence that we have available and things like that. Um, uh, I mean, as far as what the major criticisms are, uh, I mean, I have my thoughts <laughs> and I can, I can take a stab at that, but I'd be just curious to know, like what criticisms would you like to hear us address? Yeah, I can kind of bring up maybe like two or three that, cause I, I, some of them I've kind of discussed a little bit on the podcast. Um, but one of them that um, I think I watched a know why video about is there's kind of the the controversy per se about like where the hill Cumorah is. Mm -hmm. um, could you kind of explain why that's a problem for people and then kind of different context and background information that might help people deal with that? Uh, yeah, so the, the problem tends to emerge because a lot of people, um, people have kind of grown up usually with this assumption that the hill where Joseph Smith recovered the plates, which we call Camora today, was also the hill where uh, Joseph Smith or, or where the Nephites were, uh, you know, the, the, had their final battles, excuse me where the Nephites had their final battles and were killed, where the Jaredites had their final battles and, and were killed uh, because Cumorah and Rama are the same and uh, Rama being the name of the, the Jaredites used for the hill. Um, and uh, depending on who you are, uh, that either is or isn't a problem, I guess. <laughs> Some people are entirely okay with that. And in fact, they're, they themselves are prepared to die on that hill uh, <laughs> to, to no, well, pun definitely intended, but uh, 
And they're prepared to die on that hill and they insist that that's a doctrinal statement that the hill in New York is the hill in Gomorrah. Uh, for other people though, that creates a problem because uh, there's no trace of archeological evidence for uh, extensive wars or battles having been fought in or on or around that hill. Um, for me personally, it's, it's not much of a problem because I don't think it is a doctrinal statement. Uh, uh, this is a tradition that we've had for a long time that that hill is the Hill Cumorah. Uh, but uh, there's also been a competing tradition for a pretty good while now that that it actually isn't. And I think uh, the people who want us insist we have to commit to that hill, uh, they usually appeal to um, early church statements, uh, statements from early church leaders and, and even, even later church leaders, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley or Thomas S. Monson and some others who have talked about it as if it is that hill. Uh, but you can't, you, you, you know, you can't actually find, there's no point in Revelation where any prophet has said, thus saith the Lord, the hill in Palmyra, New York is the hill where the Nephites die. Um, and in fact, most recently, the church has released a, a gospel topics essay on Book of Mormon geography, where they said specifically that beyond the Book of Mormon having taken place somewhere in the ancient Americas, there is no official position on any specific site uh, or any specific location within Book of Mormon geography. So that tells us it is not in fact doctrine that the Hill Cumorah is, uh, is in New York. And in fact, it, it appears to be a, a tradition that started in 1835 by Oliver Cowdery. Um, I'm most interested in, uh, you know, I'm a historian uh, or I try to be one anyway. <laughs> Uh, and so when I have a question like this and, and the church is telling us it isn't settled doctrinally, my interest is what do the historical sources tell us? And I'm a lot less interested in Oliver Cowdery's opinion about where the Hill Cumorah is than I am in the opinion of Mormon and Moroni and where they're telling me it is. And unfortunately, I don't have them. They, they haven't appeared to me and told me, but they're eyewitnesses to the final battles of of book of mormon and so their description in the book of mormon of 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 Camorra, the land and the hill for me that is far more important than anything any church leader has said about it because they're the eyewitnesses they're my first-hand sources uh to speak in in historical terms and uh, a number of scholars have, have shown and and i find their analysis quite compelling that when you consider all the the details and the geography that they provide for the land of Camorra, it's gotta be somewhere um, somewhere else other than New York. It doesn't fit with, with the New York geography. And going even more broadly, I mean, in order to do that, you have to look at the full range of Book of Mormon geography to start piecing everything together. And I, for one, am, am personally persuaded that uh, when you take those hundreds and hundreds of details and you try to puzzle them together and you don't start with a map out in front of you, and letting what's on that map influence what you're, you know, how you're putting it together. The pieces, the way they come together uh, almost inevitably leads, in my opinion, to Mesoamerica. Um, and so uh, when you start to situate Book of Mormon geography in that uh, limited territory of Mesoamerica, a lot of things start to fall into place and, and uh, Camorra being down there uh, becomes much less of a problem 
it, it becomes a lot less of a problem that there's no archaeology in around the New York Hill, right? Yeah, I think those are some great insights. I think we have things like we we know kind of around where the New Jerusalem is because of revelation given to the Lord's prophet, but there's not that similar kind of revelation for where the Hill Cumorah is. And like right, you pointed yeah. out, like it was just some statement by like Oliver Cowdery. And I think William W. Phelps talked about it being that hill too, but like. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, uh, if, if that's how we want to do our book of Mormon geography, well, Oliver Cowdery also said that Lehi landed in Chile and, uh, and Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps both edited an article in the, uh, you know, they were editors of, of the Evening and Morning Star when it published an article talking about ruins in Guatemala uh, that uh, were good evidence and testimony that, uh, that the Book of Mormon's uh, account of, of cities and civilizations were true and things like that. So, you know, if this is how we want to do our Book of Mormon geography, we have to spread ourselves out across the entire continent because people like Oliver Cowdery believed Nephites roamed the entire land. And that can be a problem for some people, but like I said, I don't. We we don't have any reason to commit to that doctrine. We don't have to believe Oliver Cowdery actually knew the geography of the Book of Mormon. The only people I believe knew it were Mormon, Moroni, Alma. You know those those firsthand, those eyewitness sources, and and so I believe in going to the Book of Mormon and studying what it says about its geography, and not overlaying how early church. I mean, I find how early church. Uh, members interpreted geography very fascinating as as a part of the intellectual history of, of our faith but uh, i don't feel the need to commit to to accepting everything they say as doctrine about where zarahemla is or where Cumorah is or where lehigh landed things like that yeah i think that makes a lot of sense um it's one more kind of criticism i, th- I think would be interesting to talk about and get your thoughts and you i think Jasmine mentioned kind of anachronisms already a little bit, but I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about that in terms of, I think it's, it's pretty clear that when Joe Smith was the prophet, there was this gigantic list of anachronisms that's gradually gotten smaller over time. But let's maybe point out a few things like maybe horses or maybe metal swords per se. How, how could a, a Latter-day Saint deal with these things that, it seems like they are in America, but the Book of Mormon conveys that they are. Uh, yeah, no, that is a, that's a great, great question. And uh, I do think that when it comes to Book of Mormon criticisms, anachronisms in general is, you know, the big number one for a lot of people. Uh, um, and I actually, I really appreciate uh, that there's a couple of different things that I think are important to keep in mind. Um one of them uh, is the, the perspective of John E. Clark, who is a professional archaeologist. He has uh, dug extensively in Mesoamerica, and he's very respected in the field of Mesoamerican studies. And he, um, he makes the point in, in a presentation he gave a few years ago that uh, missing evidence uh, just does not hold the same persuasive value as existing evidence. And the problem of anachronisms is it always rests on the absence of evidence. Um, and, and that becomes problematic because all it takes is one person finding one example of, of something to completely 
um, eliminate that supposed anachronism. So metal, for instance, uh, that's an anachronism uh, for Book of Mormon times if we limit things to the Mesoamerican realm. It's actually not a problem for the Americas generally. There's there's metallurgy happening. There's not metal swords specifically uh, to, to comment on your specific example, but there is metallurgy happening uh, as early as four or 500 BC and earlier down in Colombia and South America. Um, and uh, there's trade happening between Mesoamerica and South America, um, you know, just at, at the same time. And so to me, it's a little unfathomable. We haven't found the evidence for it in Mesoamerica, but I just cannot fathom the idea that they're trading and interacting with these people, but they're not like, they're never trading worked metallurgical goods and wondering, hey, how did you do that? You know, I, I have a hard time seeing that as a possibility, but more to the point is, uh, if you look over time, uh, it used to be a hard, fast rule that you did not have metallurgy in Mesoamerica before 900 AD. Uh, and then they started finding more and more examples that predate 900 AD. And so then they started saying like 800 or 700. And uh, last time I checked on this, and I haven't checked on this problem in a while, uh, the published, published research I've been able to find is now saying 600 AD. Um, some personal conversations I've had with, with some Mesoamerican anthropologists who, um, who are in contact with people who have worked specifically in Western Mexico, where the earliest examples of, uh, of metallurgy in Mesoamerica are coming from, they've said that they're getting back to the fifth century, um, fifth century AD. That's the very tail end of Book of Mormon times. Um, and so we haven't quite, we can't, we can't, back up like uh, metallurgy in Nephi's time or Alma's time yet, but we're getting very close to being able to back up metallurgy in Mormon and Moroni's time. Uh, and, and that just shows you why the absence of evidence is just, it can't be compelling because the more they're digging, they're finding this stuff goes back earlier and earlier than they thought. And so that's one of the first things I, I, I like to remind people is archaeology is always an incomplete set of data. Even if we even if we conceivably could dig every single archeological site and identify every single archeological item, the reality is the vast majority of, of human material culture has deteriorated and ceased to exist. So we'll never have a complete data set with archeology. span And so, yeah, some things are missing, but they may not always be missing. And uh, even if they are always missing, our data set is incomplete. So we'll never be able to prove whether something was or wasn't every, you know, right down to everything, whether it was all there. Um, but the other thing I think is also very important to keep in mind is that the Book of Mormon, as we have it, is an English translation, and we do not have the original text. And when you're limited to working with a translation, there are certain barriers that, that get in the way. And this is one that is often used when it comes to horses and other animals. And a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people don't like this, but it's the reality. And I think it's, it's legitimate. Um, in the King James Bible, you have, don't hide your candle under a bushel. Well, that's, candle is an anachronism in the King James text because they wouldn't have been existed in ancient Israel. So instead it would, it would have been lamp, but the translators used a candle because that's what's familiar to their audience. And Joseph Smith trying to communicate concepts to a 19th century audience, or just trying to use the vocabulary he knows very well could have used different words to describe things that 
are unequivalent. Right. And so, you know, the, the question of translator translator anachronisms, which is which is a thing and people know about it. Jasmine just gave a great example with the King James Version. If we didn't have the original Greek of the King James New Testament, we wouldn't know that that anachronism is just because of the translation. It, you know, and it's, we, we would think that, oh, those New Testament texts said candle, but candle's an anachronism. So maybe the New Testament isn't true. But mm -hmm. thankfully, because we have the original text, we know in that case, it was the translators who maybe didn't necessarily mess up, but they, they translated into their culture and into their, their own language. And that's a reality that we have to deal with when it comes to horses and chariots, I think, and things like that. Um, but the other thing to consider with horses is the idea of loan shifting. And that's also one that people sometimes bag on, but it is a reality that people use appropriate words for things they're unfamiliar with all the time. In America, uh, we call the American bison a buffalo, even though a buffalo is an entirely different species. But fur trappers came through, saw something that marginally resembled a water buffalo, and they started calling it a buffalo, even though it's a bison. Or, you know, that's the technical name for it now. And same thing with hippopotamus. When the ancient Greeks first encountered a hippopotamus, they called it a hippopotamus, which means river horse in Greek, the hippo meaning horse. Of course, none of us would look at a hippo and think it like even closely resembles a horse. But in their conception, in their worldview, well, it's got four legs and it walks. Okay, it's a, it's a horse, but it's in the water. And so that's another thing to consider when we're thinking about animals that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon that maybe we don't have evidence for in the archaeological record. Well, it may not have been referring to a literal horse as we conceive of it today. Maybe it was another animal. And depending on what geographic model you subscribe to, who knows what animal it could be. Any, any number of animals. And I do want to stress, because a lot of people balk at this loan shifting explanation, but I want to stress that this is actually insanely common. People do not appreciate how widespread it's it's hard to appreciate when we live in a modern world where modern taxonomy for animals has become really robust and if you travel to a foreign country and you have your smartphone out like you see an animal you've never seen before you can like on a lot of phones you can literally take a picture and it'll it'll tell you what that animal is they didn't have that in 600 <laughs> right and, and for most of human history Migrating and traveling meant encountering new animals and new plants that you'd never heard of or seen before. And as a result, your language had no vocabulary for it. Um, and so what you inevitably did is you adapted the, the vocabulary you had to apply to those new animals and plants. And a lot of animal names we have today, she gave the example of buffalo and hippopotamus. I mean, there's a lot that could a lot more that could be given though. Uh, the term elk, you uh, were in Utah, right? We're all in North America here. I don't know, can't speak to all the people who will be listening to this later, but in North America, we use elk to refer to a specific species um, that is most like, uh, you know, a deer, right? Um, but uh, in a lot of the rest of the country in, in Europe and stuff, the word elk refers to what we would think of as a moose. Um, which is a really different species. I mean, they're similar. They have, they have antlers and stuff, but you look up moose and you look up North American elk and you can see the difference, but the European elk is a moose. So we borrowed elk to apply to this other species here. And uh, we had to come up with another word for moose. 
which we borrowed from Native Americans. But um, in any case, uh, you, you just people don't realize how much this has shaped their own vocabulary around animals and plants because we've cemented those for a few centuries now. But before that, loan shifting was the rule, not the exception. And so. And sometimes readers have to approach the text with a new lens and maybe suspend their own assumptions about what things mean when they read a text. Uh, when you read the Book of Mormon, it's not necessarily going to be self-evident exactly what it means. When you read the word horse, well, does that mean a horse is a horse is a horse? Um, you, you read certain phrases like King Lamoni prepares horses with his chariots and you assume, oh, he must be using the horses to pull the chariots. But things like that aren't actually described in the text. And there's no case in the Book of Mormon where these horses are bearing weight or being pack animals or carrying people. And so that may cause you to pause and say, okay, well, maybe they don't have to be massive beasts of burden in order to fill the requirement of what could be a horse in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. On one of my recent interviews, I had Brant Gardner on and we talked a lot about Book of Mormon translation and stuff. And now one of the ideas that he brought up is there might be some metaphor that they use in Book of Mormon times. And that idea we brought to Joseph Smith's mind. And then he put that forth in his own language and stuff. So I think sometimes we just have, we have these assumptions that we bring with us and our assumptions on what, what's happening isn't always correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think, I mean, we can go over, if, if you want to keep throwing examples out, we can go over example after example. But uh, when it comes to anachronisms, those three things that we talked about really are, for me, the, the bread and butter. And I have yet to come across something that I can't account for by considering the fact that, you know, archaeology is just incomplete, and so it's possible we're going to find it someday. Uh, it could be an issue of translation, or it could be an issue of loan shifting. And uh, like I said, I've yet to come across an example of an of an anachronism that uh, I didn't feel like could justifiably and reasonably be explained using, uh, you know, one of those three approaches. Um, and a, a lot of them, I like to just kind of keep all three possibilities open really because we don't know uh, we just spend a long time talking about loan shifting with horses and things like that but the reality is archaeology is actually getting closer and closer with the horse um uh there was a paper uh back in 2018 from a mainstream uh mesoamerican archaeologist talking about horse bones and horses potentially surviving in mesoamerica to about 2000 bc that's that's getting to about the time of the Jaredites, at least, right? Uh, I and uh, there's some other stuff uh, that's that I know about that we know about because uh, because we've just been kind of in the loop uh, on some stuff behind the scenes. But there are some horse bones and and some some findings that are in publication process, and we don't know exactly when they'll be available. But the date to uh, Book of Mormon times uh, that have been found in uh, in northern Mexico. So, uh, and maybe some other places, I don't know everywhere that he dug some up, but they're, they're in publication process with the paleontology journal. Um, we don't know exactly when or even if they'll, they'll see the light of day, but there's some interesting evidence coming out with the horse that's starting to suggest maybe it's not a problem after all. Uh, all it takes is one instance of an artifact to completely change the way that people conceptualize antiquity. I love that. I love that you mentioned those three different approaches, both the idea of 
like absence of evidence is an evidence of um of absence and then the idea of like both translation and loan shipping i think it's it's helpful to have a variety of different ways to to deal with these kind of things i love that you brought up all three of those examples um i guess i just wanted to ask just two more questions um the next question i wanted to ask is what kind of advice would you guys have for anyone that's listening to this that is currently struggling with doubts and is in the middle of a, a faith crisis and is just they're looking for that light but they're having a hard time finding it right now one thing that i would suggest is to have patience and that goes along with some of the things we've been talking about tonight of sometimes you need to have patience with the archaeological record and so when it comes to specific criticisms of the book of mormon that's that's a route to follow when you're talking about overall faith crisis or something that's really causing you to doubt, sometimes having patience. And that's not an easy answer because you desperately want easy and quick answers right now. But often the Lord can touch our lives in ways we don't expect and in his timing. And also you may have experiences that reshape how you view the gospel. And as you give yourself time and give yourself study, give yourself space to dive in and think deeply and reassess and reevaluate how you know and why you know the things you know, you can find yourself studying deeper and finding things you didn't know before and maybe reconstructing your faith in a new and even stronger way than you had before. And the other thing I would probably suggest is to just know that you're not alone. There's so many people, all of us have gone through processes where we've encountered information that Maybe, maybe it was dissonant with what we thought we understood about the gospel. And so we had to go through the process of studying and researching. And so there's people who have gone through it before. And so you can see the light at the end of their tunnel, but also there's people who want to help. Fair Mormon is an organization who exists to help people like that. The Interpreter Foundation, Book of Mormon Central, but just within your own network of friends, you'd be surprised how many people have gone through similar experiences and have come out even stronger than they were before. And so I would hope that anyone who's going through a struggle wouldn't think that they had to struggle alone, but that they could reach out to someone that they really trust and look up to in the gospel and feel like is, is strong in the gospel and can help guide them through some of these things and find a good solid network of friends. And uh, for those who don't feel like they don't have that support, reach out to people in Fair Mormon and these other apologetic organizations who are just aching and longing to help people and to keep them in the faith. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would, I would strongly echo everything Jasmine said and, uh, you know, um, patience with, with information, right? Patience with archeology, span with historical research, with all of that, uh, all of that is ongoing. Our knowledge of the past is always incomplete. And so we're learning more, uh, but, but more importantly, I think is just stressing patience with yourself. Um, and I'm going to go back to, to the story uh, I, we told or I told about, um, you know, being on my mission and reading anti-Mormon literature. And what I decided then and there while I was on my mission and didn't have access to resources because mission rules and things like that, uh, which I definitely always kept, by the way, <laughs> um, is I realized I don't know enough. And so if, if I had any message, and I don't mean this to be insulting, it's not because I think anybody's, you know, people out there are stupid or whatever, but, you know, I would just like to stress, in all likelihood, you don't know enough. Um, 
And that's, uh, that's a reality of, you don't know enough about history. You don't know enough about a lot of this stuff that becomes relevant and important to addressing these questions. And uh, you, you, you need to appreciate the fact that a lot of what, what is causing faith crises deals with either deals with history in some way, either it's, it's early church history or it's ancient history dealing with, with scripture and things like that, but it's history. And there are people who literally uh, spend their entire lives going to school, getting multiple degrees, um, you know, spending probably sometimes a whole decade in school, getting trained and becoming qualified, and then practicing as historians or as Egyptologists or as archaeologists or whatever. And they spend their whole lives dedicated to these disciplines and, uh, and learning them. And you're suddenly feeling some urgency to master all of those things at once or, or to get answers about those things all at once. Um, but you need to appreciate that uh, the moment you start doing that and you start diving into the primary sources, diving into uh, different re you know, research and things like that, you're trying to do something that people usually get a lot of training for. And this is something that's all brand new to you. And so I would absolutely encourage, just be patient with yourself. Understand that you don't know enough and that's okay. It's not because you're stupid. It's because you haven't gone through all that training that most people do when they're and doing this. Even right? those who do get that training, there's, they yeah. still don't know enough. There's, there's that, always more to learn. In fact, if you talk to anyone who's ever been to grad school in a lot of these disciplines, they'll tell you about what they call imposter syndrome, which is the feeling as they're going through grad school that they don't actually know what they're doing and they're just faking it. <laughs> and it's something that literally every single person who goes through it has. It's something I have sometimes as I'm doing research is like, do I really know what I'm doing? Um, it's something that sometimes they'll even get throughout their career. It will, it'll, it'll, it'll pester some scholars their entire lives. Um, and so it's, it's just something I think you've got to appreciate. You don't know enough to make some of the judgments that you're trying to make, or you feel some urgency or pressure to make. Um, and so when, when I think you accept that you need to have patience with yourself, I think you need to realize it's important to know that the ultimately the most important answers are going to come from God, right? You can know the Book of Mormon is true without knowing how to resolve every question about anachronisms or whatever, right? And you can know that Joseph Smith is a prophet without knowing how to resolve every question you might have about polygamy and stuff like that. And I'm not discouraging you to pursue those questions and find answers, just the opposite. Absolutely do it. But know that you can have a testimony still while you work through those and you can pursue a testimony. And so be patient with yourself, uh, free your testimony on some level from, from the need to find these answers because that's the biggest, the hardest thing. If you're trying to, um, if you're trying to find answers to prove to yourself that the church is true or whatever, you're not going to be able to last long enough because, like I said, this is a lifetime pursuit for a lot of people. Uh, but if you can, if you can continue to pray and and seek faith and and try to build your testimony in spiritual ways, read your scriptures, things like that. Um, and also pursue answers to questions and be patient with yourself. And, and like I said, understand that you don't know enough right now and it's gonna take time and just go one question at a time, one issue at a time and, and work through it and go as, some, for some people working through one question is a matter of reading a single article and they feel like, okay, I've got that, I'm fine. For other people, 
they just feel like they have to just keep digging in. And uh, I'm, I'm saying dig as deep or as long as you need to on any question, but be willing to be patient, continue to try and stay active in the church and, and build your testimony in other ways while you're working through that. And I know sometimes that's all easier said than done, but I also know a lot of people have done it. And so it can be done. And, uh, you know, I've done it. A lot of other people I know have done it. And uh, that would be kind of my best advice, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of really great advice. Thank you for that. I think in particular, it kind of stood out to me that you just said, taking it one, one, like one thing at a time. I think sometimes we can kind of, what I call kind of like get doubt bombed, where like, if we're just, we're spending all this focus on looking at all this critical information. And sometimes we spend more time doing that than actually studying the scriptures and studying the words of the prophets and having spiritual experiences. And I think psychologically, we're just kind of like in turmoil because we have all these, all these things we're dealing with at the same time. And I think, so I think just being patient and just taking it one thing at a time is so important. And in addition, it's part of our theology to inquire after truth and additional intelligence. And we believe in an eternal progression. And what a beautiful thing that we feel like we don't need to know it all now, but it is our goal to do it. And so we should continually have that desire and, and the fire to want to learn more. We don't have to know it all now. And the process of having questions and having doubts is a celestial pursuit because we believe that it's our goal to continually learn and build upon intelligence after intelligence. And I gain a lot of comfort from that, that it's not just a lifelong pursuit, it's an eternal pursuit to continually try to vast, uh, to enlarge our understanding. Um, yeah, and if I could just add one more thing and another thought that I, I just had as we were talking about that is, I, I have found a lot of value when I've struggled in clinging to uh, something that I do find compelling about the gospel or about, you know, the historical evidence or whatever the case may be. Um, so when it comes to like anachronisms, which we talk about, another thing to just keep in mind, like you mentioned, is that the list of anachronisms is getting smaller, right? And so if you're struggling with a particular anachronism, Sometimes for me, it's just helpful to look at that history and be like, well, the long-term trend is these get resolved and uh, look at this thing that was once an anachronism that actually is now evidence for the Book of Mormon because we found, uh, we found examples of it and things like that. And I've often found when, when I'm dealing with particularly thorny challenges on the Book of Mormon or whatever, sometimes for me, it's good to go back and, and just have a certain some stock evidences, if you will, some key things that I'm like, these are the things that I find intellectually compelling about the Book of Mormon that I haven't found a satisfactory naturalistic explanation for. And going back to those sorts of things, seek out evidence along with answers, right? Don't just, don't just read the doubt bombs as you talked about, and don't just think, you know, oh, I've got to find answers to these questions. In addition to that, I think seeking out some evidence that bolsters faith and gives you reason like, well, I can't resolve this particular issue. But on the other hand, there's, there's these different things that are really compelling evidences that if I were to believe the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith made up the Book of Mormon, I couldn't explain how these things, this evidence is here. I, I find it really useful to have that kind of approach where um, it, it doesn't replace faith, but, but having 
you know, seek out evidence as well. Look at, uh, look at what people have to say and about why they believe and, and things like that and, and what they find compelling. Um, so that you're not just digging in these, these holes of doubt and, and, you know, things like that. Yeah, I think the evidence can often like give us a reason to doubt our doubts. And it really, it really levels the, the playing field where we can, we can exercise faith. Um, the last question I wanted to close with is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you guys? The gospel of Jesus Christ is broad and encompassing, but for me, it's about welding all of humanity back to God, it, and it all centers on the temple. As much as I love the Book of Mormon, my real passion is studying the temple because I believe that that's just the crowning capstone of the restoration. After, you know, Book of Mormon is the keystone, but the, the temple is one of those final things that Joseph Smith instituted before he was martyred, and I think it's it represents a culmination of a lot of a lot of things theologically for me, and the temple represents connecting all of God's family together through the sealing ordinance. Joseph Smith describes it as a welding link, being able to connect all of God's children back to God, and that's the whole purpose of salvation is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And it's not just us as members of the church, as Michael McKay recently articulated, Latter-day Saints are the thread that connects the human family together. It's our job as emissaries to go out and to connect the human family through his family history work and temple work, and also through missionary work to save all of humanity and connect them back to God in just this beautiful, uh, beautiful cosmology. And, and for me, that's what gives me comfort, regardless of death and tragedy and, and failures in life and personal family struggles to know that ultimately humanity and me individually and me and my family are going to be saved and connected back to God as long as we're trying our best is the most meaningful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ for me. Uh, yeah, uh, I think all of that's really, um, really important and, and, uh, and stuff like that. For me, I've always felt like the gospel of Jesus Christ is, um, I want to call it a lifestyle. That's not really quite the right word, though. I mean, it's obviously something greater and grander than, than that, but it calls on me to live a particular lifestyle, right, um, as, as, try, as trying to emulate savior and be a disciple of christ um but i think it, it it's it's almost it's a paradigm right it's a lens through which we should see the world see the rest of humanity and and uh, interpret life and uh you know it calls on me to see everyone as my brother or sister right the whole human family is children of god um and uh, that that calls on me to, to interact with my fellow man in particular ways and, and behave in certain ways towards them and things like that. And I feel like we live in this world that um, increasingly as, as religion has become less important in a lot of people's lives, uh, the result has been they've adopted ideologies, political ideologies and things like that, that become the framework through which they view the rest of the world and everyone else around them. And, uh, and through those means, people become either friend or foe, right? Uh, if you have a particular ideology and uh, 
and and that ideology identifies you know people who are conservative or religious as the bad guys then it doesn't matter what anybody else actually thinks or believes they're the enemy or vice versa right if you adopt a, a particular uh, ideology where uh, the secular liberals are are evil right then then suddenly you don't have to know anything about a person except whether they're a secular liberal and that tells you everything you know but the gospel of jesus christ i think you know if as members of the church and as children of god we're called to uh, adopt the gospel of jesus christ as our ideology as our lens as our framework and uh, and that should be changed that should change everything right uh, it should change who we identify as our people um it should change who we um how we approach those that we disagree with, it should change absolutely everything. Um, and I, I mean, I don't wanna reduce the gospel to that because it's so much more, it's got cosmic significance that Jasmine's talked about. And, you know, uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ is central to all of that. Um, but in terms of how it, how it plays out in my practical life, I, I believe in, in trying to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and making it you know, above and, and beyond any sort of political commitments I feel or, or whatever, uh, I, I believe in making the gospel of Jesus Christ that that ultimate uh, foundation of our lives, right? And that's what I strive to do. So. Thank you. I think, think those are some great insights that will be very, very helpful for our, for our audience. Thank you for being on. Appreciate you guys. Um, yeah, no problem. You're great. a great interviewer. This has been really an enjoyable experience. So thank you for having us. You're welcome. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.